out of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is really one of the most difficult books to understand, but it's still full of a lot of good wisdom. It is hard to understand exactly what's said in some verses, but we are going to try to go through chapter 4 tonight, verse by verse, and uh, trust that it will be a help. You'll also be receiving a sheet that has this chapter typed out on it so that if you do want to write notes next to the scriptures, you can. And uh, so uh, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4, go on. All right, then we're going to look at verse 1. It says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was no power. I'm sorry. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. All right, let me read that again, verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Uh, here again, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. He was the third king of Israel. Uh, he was quite despondent and dis in despair about not only his condition, but about the condition of the world. He started out to be a good king. He started out doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord. When he was young, the Lord gave him the book of Proverbs and many other Proverbs that is wise sayings. Then about 20, 23 years into his reign, which lasted 40 years, many women turned his heart away from God, away from the wisdom he knew, and he completely abandoned God. He abandoned all the wisdom he knew, and he just went off into the world seeking fulfillment from various things in the world. He tried women, he tried wine, he tried pleasure, he tried music. He tried education, he tried wisdom, he tried everything the world could offer him, and it left him very despondent. And thus we have the phrase, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, repeated over and over and over and over again in this book. I think about three times in this chapter we'll see that, which means he said, everything the world has to offer me has left me empty. And he became despondent over some of the things that he saw in the world. Now, verse 1 might not mean a lot to us here in America. But if you live in a country of oppression, uh, this verse does mean a lot. There have been many oppressed people, and there currently are still many people who are oppressed. Oppressed by communism, oppressed by fascism, uh, oppressed by totalitarianism, and so on and so forth. You and I, when we read verse 1, ought to thank the Lord tonight that we live in America and that we have a government set up of checks and balances in our country uh, for the main reason that we would not have to live under oppression. We do not live under oppression. 
I know you hear people talking about, complaining about the taxes and so on and so forth. They, they ought to go to some other third world country and live there for a year. Uh, or they ought to go to some country that has lived under fascism or communism, uh, such as Cambodia, and live there for a year, and they'll come back and kiss the ground. Uh, they walk on here in America. We are blessed. We, we do have a president, but we have a checks and balance system, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the executive branch of government that's, that was designed, I believe, by God, according to the word of God, to, to put each other in checks and in balances so that nobody could rise up and become an oppressor here in America. But for others, it says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. And so we see what happens with oppression. In fact, God told Israel, You don't want a king. But they said, we want a king. And God said, you don't want a king. They said, we want a king. God said, you don't want a king, believe me. And finally, uh, Israel got what it want. They wanted a king, they got a human king, and then what did they get with it? They got all kinds of oppression. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's why we ought to thank the Lord every day of your life that you live in America. Because the government we have set up cannot become absolute power. We can vote them out four years from now. We can vote out our assemblymen two years from now. We can vote out our state senators six years from now. And uh, then the states are set up the same way. So there's a checks and balance system in every one of our states. Our government's not perfect, but I believe it's the best idea that's ever come across earth. And we should be very, very thankful for it. But there are many oppressed people when reading the Bible who would nod their head and say, I understand verse 1, even though we don't. I thank the Lord for Psalm 9 and verse 9 says this, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of uh, trouble. So man oppresses. Now, the word oppressed means to control or govern by cruel or unjust use of force or authority. Uh, and much of the world is this way today. In China, you can only have one baby. After that, they have what's called forced abortions. You have one baby. And uh, so right now, the number of boys that are being born in comparison to the number of girls in China, uh, has been eight to two because the parents don't want girls. They want a boy who can carry on their name to the next generation. Well, you see the problems they're going to have, and they're are, they are starting to have now. As these boys are getting older, they want a wife. And they're not over there. And um, if a, a lady has a second baby, then the entire commune that she belongs to is punished. They have a communal system. Uh, how would you like to live that way? I wouldn't. Uh, we ought to thank the Lord for America. Verse 2, Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead, 
dead more than the living which are yet alive. Here we see Solomon weary of life. Uh, we see him uh, wishing he were dead. Uh, I think uh, sometimes human beings get to that point. Uh, Solomon felt that the dead who didn't have to live on this earth were better off than having to live with this kind of an oppressive uh, uh, type of government, which again we can't relate to because we've never lived under it. Now this might sound very pessimistic to, uh, pessimistic to some, but on the other hand it could be a very spiritual reaction. Let me give you an example. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Did you ever feel that way? You know, I'm not saying that any of us are suicidal, but did any, any of you ever feel, you know, I wish I could just go to heaven? Did any of you ever wish for the rapture? Yeah, that's what he's kind of doing here in verse number 2. Verse 3, Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Verse 3, Yea, better is he than both they, both they referring to those that have who are living under oppression and those who have died under oppression. He says, better is a person who has never been born than somebody who has had to live under oppression or has ever died under oppression. Because they've never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now, see, the, the problem with this earth is mankind. It's not with God. It's not with the way God made it. It's not with nature. In fact, the earth is a very beautiful place. It's the people that erect it and uh, especially oppressive governments. And I'm glad for the fact that democracy is taking hold in some countries uh, now, even right in front of our eyes. And I think in the long run, if they will work it right, it will be better for their country, and they'll never want to go back uh, to the old ways of oppression that they have lived under, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the Ukraine, uh, these are some of the more recent countries that have begun to experiment a little bit with democracy and freedom, and I hope those countries can establish freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of expression and uh, a capitalistic type of system where people are rewarded for their hard work. And I think it's going to take time, but in those countries eventually they will enjoy that, that freedom that the human spirit yearns for so that they'll say, we don't ever want to go back. That's how America was started. They didn't want to live under the oppression of the king of England. And so they came here, they wanted to be free. Pilgrims and Puritans, they wanted to be free from oppression. They wanted to be able to serve God in freedom and reach their potential as human beings. So... Verses 1 through 3 is all about oppression and how bad man can oppress other men. It's been horrible. I don't know. You know, I can remember studying a little bit about Cambodia under Pol Pot and, you know, how he had put to death one-third of the entire country and he left the poorest and the uneducated alive and he took all the doctors and all the nurses and all the engineers and all the professional people and 
brought them, you know, into stadiums and filled up the stadiums with them and then killed them all because he considered anyone who was educated as a threat to him. And he just, just, was just, just brutalized the people of Cambodia. And uh, so we, uh, we've never lived under that. And, and I don't, you know, I think any American who complains about our country uh, just ought to fall to their knees and ask God to forgive them. Uh, for the horrible sin of complaining. We've got to be so thankful. So we see oppression. But now we see the very other end of how bad man can be. Look at verse 4. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So he says, we got on this side over here oppression, horrible oppression, the putting down of people. And it's a terrible thing to see. Now in verse 4, we see a man lifting up himself. And how does mankind treat him? With applause? With a pat on the head? Good job? No, with envy. Uh, so the problem on earth is man. Man's depraved nature. Man is what the Bible calls a sinner. And so man oppresses uh, the poor or else he envies the, the rich and the well-to-do. He, he's not satisfied with anybody. I considered all the travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. So here's this guy in verse 4. He works hard. He prospers. And what result does he have? He gets envied. Envy is a terrible thing. Proverbs 27.4 says, Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Jesus was delivered up to be crucified for envy. The religious leaders of Jesus' day uh, envied him. I mean, he was healing the sick. Uh, he was feeding the hungry. Uh, he was uh, helping those that were demonically oppressed, setting them free. He was getting people saved, and he was doing all kinds of good things, and you'd, you'd think everybody would get behind him and say, isn't that wonderful what he's doing, how he's helping everybody? But the religious leaders considered him a threat to their religious system and their money-making racket that they had him delivered up to Pilate to be crucified for envy. That was the catalyst for them delivering him up to be crucified. Of course, we know he died for our sins. That's the main reason. But that was the catalyst that got him to Pilate was the sin of envy. Uh, we ought to rather rejoice at the blessing and the good fortune of a hard-working man and somebody who does that which is right in God's sight. We ought not to envy them. We ought to rejoice. We ought to lift them up and use them as a role model. We ought to say, hey, look how this man has been blessed. He's worked hard for what he has gotten. Uh, he is an honorable man. Uh, he's a man of integrity, and he's, this is how he has gotten to this point. We ought to use him as an example rather than tearing him down. Verse 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Uh, this just simply means that he decays away. Uh, this is talking about a slothful man when it says a, a fool foldeth his hands together. He doesn't work. Um, he's lazy. Uh, and he eats his own flesh, which means he, he, he decays away. 
God is a God who blesses the industrious, not the lazy. Um, one, uh, one golfer said, I, I noticed that the harder I practiced, the luckier I got. And that's kind of how it is in life. The harder you work, the, quote, luckier you get in other people's estimation. But you know it's not luck. It's hard work being rewarded. Verse 6, better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. This verse here is like a verse Solomon repeated 30 years earlier over in Proverbs 15, 17 when he said, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. He's saying you're better off to have a home where there's love inside of the home and all you have is a bunch of raw vegetables to eat than to live in a home where everybody's rich and you've got a, a pig on the spit going around and all kinds of rich food and delicacies, um, but there's hatred there. See, love is what makes the home. Uh, we need to have love in our homes, not hatred. Now, you're better off with nothing but love in your home than having everything but having hatred there. And uh, we need to fix the homes today. Um, I was uh, listening to another statistic from David Gibbs today, the lawyer. He was saying that 70% of the young people that grow up in independent fundamental Baptist churches uh, abandon our faith and do not practice it when they become adults. And uh, when they were polled why, they said the number one reason that upset them and turned them away from the faith was the fact that their mother and father fought in the home all the time they were growing up. And it turned them off. We need to have peace in our homes. We need to have love in our homes. Uh, you're better off with just a little. Uh, it says here in verse number 6, Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. We live in a day and age when, when many of our uh, Christian mothers have left the home to go work in the workforce, uh, thinking somehow that they'll have more satisfaction if they have more money and more things and so on and so forth. The Bible says the very opposite. You'd be better off with just... A handful, but quietness, calmness in the home, than to have both your hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. I know that's not a very popular message today, but it's still in the Bible. In verse 7 and 8, he talks about a lonely person, a person who's all by himself, an isolated person. He says, Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. So here we have a sad description of an isolated man who just lives for himself. He doesn't have any friends. All of his life is about himself. 
All of his life is about getting things for himself. He is alone. There is not a second. He doesn't have a child. He doesn't have a brother. And so, in other words, he doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a, a friend. Yet, is there no end of all of his labor? He has to work all day. He has to work when he gets home. There's no one to do his own dishes, his own clothes, and so on and so forth. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Even though he makes all this money and has no one to spend it on but himself, it doesn't satisfy him. It doesn't satisfy him at all. Life is made by God to be shared, not to live for ourselves. And I think one of the greatest texts in all the Bible on sharing lives is in verses 9 through 12. He tells us how terrible of a life it is to be isolated, to be alone, to be selfish, to be self-centered. And, and by the way, you can be a single person and be very successful for God. You don't have to be single and be lonely. You can be single and have friends. Um, and uh, you can be single and be a, a vital, uh, vibrant member of your local church. Uh, but this verse 8 is not talking about you single people here tonight. It's talking about some selfish, self-centered guy out there that just thinks life is completely about himself and shares it with nobody. I mean, some single people have become the greatest Christians that have ever lived. But uh, they're not loners. They live for others. They give their lives for others. Now, this is a great text, verses 9 through 12. I almost invariably either read this at a wedding or teach it in premarital counseling. I have a wedding to do tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon, and I'm going to read this text uh, at the wedding. It's a great text for marriage, but it's not just talking about marriage here in verses 9 through 12. Uh, it's talking about having a friend. He that has friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Uh, we're told in Proverbs 18.24. So a person who shows themselves friendly, even though they're single, can have friends. They can have a lot of friends. And God can give them a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I really think that God has people out there for us. And I think it's okay for men to develop friendships with other men that are very, very spiritual, very holy, and uh, these men can help each other. And ladies can develop relationships with ladies that are very spiritual and very holy. And these ladies can help each other. Or marriage. So let's look at verses 9 through 12. And let's just see the advantage of not living an isolated life. Not living alone. It says in verse 9, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. Uh, I want you to notice that two people can get more done together than just one working alone. There's an English word called synergy uh, that is used sometimes to describe this. Um, if you uh, um, put uh, one person on the end of a tug-of-war rope, you know, there's so much that he can pull. But if you put two people on the end of a tug-of-war uh, tug rope, they, pull, they can pull over twice their strength that way. There's just something about teaming up. 
And they can accomplish more than if they just pull a loan. It's like the illustration of the, the horse out at the fair there. Um, I think one of the horses pulled 400 pounds and another one pulled 450 pounds and then they yoked them up together and together they pulled over 12,000 pounds. Well, 400 plus 450 equals 850. But together they pulled 12,000 pounds. It's just the way God designed physics. Uh, two people, and in anything, two people, for instance, in marriage can accomplish more for God if they're both living for God than just uh, one person in many cases because they have a good reward for their labor. It's not always true, but, but, but if you can get two people together working together on something, they can accomplish more. Notice some of the other benefits of having a friend. Verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Now certainly that would be true physically. Some guy falls down and breaks his leg and he's all alone, well, he's going to have trouble. But I think it's true also spiritually. Um, one of the tricks of the devil is to try to get you isolated. To try to get you out of church, to try to get you out of fellowship, to try to get you to wander away from the flock and be out by yourself. Uh, because that's when you're going to fall and there's not going to be anyone there to help you. Uh, we need fellowship. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. It's one of the evidences that a person's really walking in the light of Christ Jesus. They're in fellowship with other believers. And I, I would even go so far as to say this. Married couples, be careful. You don't isolate yourself from the church. As a couple... Make sure you don't isolate yourself from the world. God didn't allow you to get married so you could just isolate yourself and live a selfish, self-centered life where you just live for the two of you. He put you together so you could, in a joint effort, work for the Lord and do His will. And so spiritually, if we have a friend, and this is where some of us need to be friends. Some of you know people who have fallen out of church recently. They're not here tonight. They're falling it says, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, he hath not another to help him up. God may be prompting some of you tonight by the Holy Spirit to make a phone call, to send a note to have that brother or sister over for dinner this Sunday or something, and say, hey, why don't you come to church Sunday, then come over for dinner, or, or whatever it might be, and try to lift up your fellow. Notice also companionship, verse 11. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Uh, again, this is true physically and many, many customs. Uh, people sleep together uh, for the purpose of getting heat. We just happen in our country to have warm homes and so on and so forth. I was reading in the newspaper yesterday about the two boys that got stranded somewhere. I forgot where it was. They were on a boat and they got stranded and uh, they ended up, um, until they were rescued, they ended up having to sleep together just to get warmth from each other. Uh, that was the only way they could survive. That just happened last week. Uh, I can imagine, what if they were alone and the hypothermia had set in or something? 
or froze to death. Now the same is true spiritually. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, then they can have heat. But how can one be warm alone? You know, some somebody, for instance, who's living alone and they've gotten backslidden, they've fallen out of church and so on and so forth. Have you ever noticed how all of us, all of us, our hearts can get cold. We can get hurt. We can get offended by somebody. And, and, and pretty soon we're, we don't, we're not tender-hearted anymore. We're not warm anymore. We're... We're uh, uh, just uh, uh, cold. Uh, I mean, there's been times over these 25 years where I've gotten down about something. I felt like giving up, but my wife was able to give me some spiritual warmth. Where I said, I don't know why I do this anymore. You know, you start pitying yourself. (laughs) Why do I do this? Nobody's listening anyway. Why don't I just quit? And you, You get down and your heart gets cold. The Bible says this is especially going to be a problem in the last days. In Matthew 24, it says, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You need to stay around somebody who's on fire for God. And uh, there's always somebody in every church who's on fire for God. Those are the people you should hang around with. Uh, don't hang around with the cold people. When you get yourself a good pile of briquettes and they're red hot in the summer and you're cooking hot dogs or something, and you take one of those briquettes and you set it aside out of the fire, that briquette's no longer red and hot and glowing. It becomes gray and black and cold because it has gotten away from the warm people, the warm briquettes. Same thing with people. But you take that cold briquette and you put it back in the fire and it'll warm up getting heat from the other briquettes. That's how the Christian, the church is God's idea. It's his institution. He's pretty smart, isn't he? It's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons for the church is for fellowship. And uh, so if you find someone getting cold, try to get them back into church. Try to get them uh, back close to you. And uh, let's not just let people fall away so easily. Verse 12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. So if one ends up getting attacked, now of course this would be true physically, but it might also be true verbally. Uh, Somebody starts getting attacked verbally by gossip, by slander, by some tail bearer. You can stand up for that person and protect that person. See, it's wise to have friends. There's a story about the people of Laish over in the book of Judges. The Bible says the people of Laish had nothing to do with anybody. Nothing to do with them. But all of a sudden, one day, these armies came down to attack them, and they didn't have anyone to help protect them. And they ended up being destroyed by the attacking armies. The short and bitter history that Laish had, that country of people, why? Because they didn't have anything to do with anybody else. And then when troubles came to them, they had nobody to come to their help and protect them. You know, I think countries should be friends with other countries. Amen? Not be isolated. And uh, I'm not saying we have to, you know, join in with them. We can still, we, we can still keep our identity and, and keep our uh, separation and, 
culture and so on and so forth, but we ought to be friends with other countries so that if somebody's attacked and, you know, I'm glad World War II, I'm glad we had a whole lot of friends that would help us take on the Germans uh, and the Japanese and so on and so forth. And, and uh, God disciplined those nations through that war and now they've turned around uh, to where they're friendly uh, towards other nations now. So this is why it's important to have fellowship. And this is why it's important to have a good marriage. And this is why it's important if you're a single person to have friends. This is why it's important to stay in church no matter how hard your heart gets or how cold it gets. And this is why it's important that we go after people who haven't been in church in a while. Try to get them back in. And, and I know God has some people on your heart, and I believe before Sunday he'd have you make some effort. Try and get them in. And then it says, last of all, verse 12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, this could mean a lot of things, but a threefold cord is what they make rope out of. If you've ever gone to the hardware store and bought rope, you'll notice that it's three because the law of physics says that three cords bound around each other bind when pressure and tension is put on them. Whereas if it's just two cords, they slip apart. And I think that not only do we need to have a friend or a good marriage, but we need to have God in our marriages. We need to have God in our friendships. He's the third, well, he should be the first person of the threefold cord. And uh, if you can have, for instance, a marriage where God is the first person and the husband and the wife, and then when tension is put on that, that uh, marriage, and there's no marriage that isn't tested, uh, but a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And we need to have God in our lives. And we need to have friends in our lives, good Christian friends. And uh, not be loners. Not be isolated, because our day of trial is coming, and woe unto him that is when alone uh, when he falleth, uh, the Scripture says. Do you have God in your life tonight? Do you know God? Do you know his Son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior? Well, let's look at verses 13 through 16 in closing. This is a parable. It's uh, It's... Hard to understand, like the first four verses, it's a contradiction in man. Again, by the time you get done with this parable, just like we saw up in verses 1 through 4, you just kind of scratch your head saying, man, what is wrong with man? He oppresses the poor, but then some, when somebody does well, he envies him. Man's never satisfied, and that's basically the thoughts here now in verses 13 through 16. Again, man's never satisfied. Verse 13, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. This verse tells us it's better to be a poor and wise child who can still be taught than to become the king, than to become the highest position in the land and, and no longer be able to be admonished. In other words, we should never quit learning. Never quit learning. No matter what your position is, you don't know it all. Thomas Edison once said, 
none of us knows one one millionth of one percent of anything. And so we can always be learning. Uh, and I believe it would be God's will that we always be learning more and more things. And, and that we'd also be able to be admonished no matter what our position. We should never think we're above somebody coming up to us with help and a humble heart correcting us. It says you'd be better off just being a poor little kid in a kingdom who can be taught something than to become the king of that kingdom and not let anyone teach you anything anymore. So be humble. For out of prison, verse 14, he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun, which the second child that shall stand up in his stead. So here's the story. This old king, he won't be admonished anymore. Nobody wants him to be the king. And it's probably presumed here that eventually he dies. And somehow this little child, this little young, wise, poor child, makes his way out of the prison of life and ends up being the next leader of the kingdom. He that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living that walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. So he says, now I'm looking at the crowds that come up with this child, this child that's now going to stand in the stead of this king. Verse 16 says, there is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them, they also that come after shall not rejoice in him. What's it say? It's just simply saying this, they're not satisfied either. Now here's the breakdown. Here's what it would be like today. It would be like people not enjoying President Clinton as the president. And then they say, boy, are we going to be glad when this guy's gone. And so President Bush then is elected and in a very short time, they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. Man, how are we going to put up with this guy for eight years? Well, human nature was the same way back in Solomon's day. They weren't satisfied when that young, poor, wise child who could be admonished grew up in the stead of that king they couldn't stand. Now they can't stand him. Now they can't stand him. Man is never satisfied. Let me just close by reading Matthew Henry's commentary on verses 13 through 16. Maybe he can explain it better than I can because some of this is pretty tough. Verses 13 through 16, this is what Matthew Henry says. A king is not happy unless he have wisdom, verses 13 and 14. If he be foolish, he will not suffer any counsel or admonition to be given him. Folly and willfulness commonly go together. And those that most need admonition can worst bear it. But neither age nor titles will secure men respect if they have not true wisdom and virtue to recommend them. While wisdom and virtue will gain men honor even under the disadvantages of youth and poverty, a king is not likely to continue if he have not a confirmed interest in the affections of the people. 
He that is king must have a successor, a second, a child that will stand up in his stead, his own, suppose, or perhaps that poor and wise child spoken of in verse 13. People are never long easy and satisfied. There is no end, no rest of all the people. They are continually fond of changes and know not what they would have. As it has been, so it is likely to be still. Those that come after will be of the same spirit and shall not rejoice in him whom at first they seemed extremely fond of. Today, Hosanna. Tomorrow, crucify. This is vanity and vexation of spirit. And so he's showing human nature here and it's not good, is it? These aren't very good pictures of human nature. It's kind of like uh, the church I was once in when uh, the pastor left, and uh, some of the people were really glad that the pastor left. And the next guy came in, and in just months, some of them were saying, how can we get rid of this guy? I mean, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was really sad. It was a sad experience to see. Um, but that's how we are with pastors and presidents and governors and mayors and uh, kings and so on and so forth. That's how the human race is. Well, we need to rise above that. And we need to be men and women of prayer who pray for our government, who are thankful for our country, who enjoy what we have. I don't know why people complain about America. I, I just don't understand it. We have it so easy. We don't have oppression. You can get in your car and drive anywhere you want tonight. No one's going to stop you. You can go to any store you want tonight. No one's going to stop you. Uh, you know, you can take a vacation, go wherever you want. People aren't going to stop. We're so free, it isn't funny uh, here. And we ought to be thankful for that. Okay. Well, I hope you know God tonight. I hope you have a threefold cord. I hope if maybe you're married that you're having a good relationship with your wife or husband and that you're, you've got God in your marriage. If you don't have God in your marriage, your marriage isn't right. If you're single, uh, you, you, God wants to give you some good Christian friends. And then you need to have God in that relationship. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you're not saved, you need Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ is God's only Son who left heaven above and came to the earth lived a perfect life, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, set an example for us to follow, to study, to research out, taught many wonderful things, but ultimately came to take our sins upon his body on the cross and then to satisfy God the Father's wrath and anger that was against us, Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures on the cross and shed his blood to wash away our sins because in God's judgment he said without the shedding of blood there is no remission, there's no forgiveness of our sins. And so somebody had to come who could shed innocent blood, perfect blood that would satisfy God and only Jesus Christ met those just righteous demands of God Almighty. And so Christ died for our sins, was buried Three days and three nights later, he rose from the grave, and he's alive forevermore today. 
And he speaks to us today through the Bible, the Word of God, and through his Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and says, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Son of God. Receive him. Accept him as your Savior. Trust in him, and he'll give you the gift of eternal life. The Bible says our part is to call on him and believe on him with our whole heart. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He's the only way to God, Jesus Christ. If you don't know him tonight, trust in him as your Savior. I'd like us just to bow our heads and close our eyes, and we're just going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll do a little singing here tonight and all. Our Heavenly Father, thank you.